0: Hello and welcome to the Knowledge Without College podcast. This is your host, Patrick Butler, and today I have an awesome episode to share with you. I just had an amazing conversation with a gentleman named Akshay Nanavati. Akshay is a veteran uh, from the Marine Corps. He's a speaker, he's an adventurer, and he's an entrepreneur. He's got a new book called Firvana. Uh, which we talk about extensively in this interview here. Uh, He received endorsements of his book from people ranging from Seth Godin, the Dalai Lama, and uh, Jack Canfield. uh, Wide praise for his book, and after talking to him, I understand why, you know, he is the real deal when it comes to a lot of self-help books and self-help mindset stuff. There's people that talk about it and write about it and make a fortune off of that. And then there's people that actually live it. And Akshay, uh, I can tell he actually lives it. So uh, I really enjoyed this conversation. I'm really uh, looking forward to seeing what else Akshay produces in the future uh, because I'm sure it's bound to be great. So please, without further delay, enjoy this conversation with Akshay Nanavati. Hey, Akshay, thank you so much for joining us today. It's an honor to have you on the show. My pleasure.
1: Thank you for having me, man. Really good to be here.
0: Thank you again. Well, uh, For the audience out there who maybe is not familiar with your work just yet, would you mind giving them a brief uh, you know, bio about your, yourself, your
1: background? Sure, sure. Yeah. My work with Fear today and kind of how I got here, it really began in high school when uh, that journey kind of began in high school when I moved from India to Austin, Texas. And soon after moving, I got very heavily into drugs, into alcohol. I used to cut myself, burn myself, was in a very self-destructive pattern. I lost, a friend, lost two friends to drug addiction and was headed down that path myself until thankfully I washed it down and decided to join the Marines. And uh started training, and it took me about a year and a half to get in the Marines because two doctors told me that Marine Corps boot camp would kill me because of a blood disorder I have. So I learned as a result of fighting through that enlisting anyway. When I joined the Marines, I not only sort of enjoyed it, but I thrived. You know, I graduated infantry school as the honor graduate of my platoon, and I learned in the Marines the value of embracing adversity, the value of suffering, the value of struggle, the value of fear. Because of course military training was not easy, right? Um and so as a result of that I looked for other ways to challenge myself. I went like mountain climbing, cave diving, skydiving, ice diving, you name it. Kind of nature became my playground to explore the limit the limits of the and ultimately the limitlessness of the human potential. But then in 2007 I was deployed to Iraq as an infantry marine where one of my jobs out there was to walk in front of vehicles looking for bombs before they could be used to kill me and my fellow marines. Wow. So somewhat dangerous job. Yeah, te- navigate fear a lot. And, you know, ultimately, again, thrive came back home. But my real battle, probably the toughest one I faced was after coming back, I was diagnosed with post traumatic stress disorder, struggled with severe depression, really serious alcoholism. And one day I was on the brink of suicide. And really hitting that low moment in my life, was the trigger to change. That's when I started researching neuroscience, psychology, spirituality, initially just to heal myself, but it led me on this far deeper path to figure out how do we collectively in our human family navigate the experience of suffering? Because of course, I'm not the only person who suffered, right? We all suffer. So how do we embrace that and use it to move forward?
0: Well, from from what you just described there, you know, it sounds like you uh, got your mindset on something after seeing Black Hawk down, you want to join the Marines, you fought through Resistance to even join the Marines, being told no multiple times, mm-hmm. getting out there doing your job, su- surviving uh, such a, in, under hazardous conditions, and coming back home. I think a lot of people, their first reaction to that story would think that um, you know you'd have a sense of fulfillment and happiness coming home from that. Uh, but you described having PTSD and, and severe depression. How, do
1: what was? How were you able to identify the root of that of those feelings? That's an awesome, awesome question. So, you know, when you come back, the, and this, this ties a lot into just the nature of happiness, which, we'll, which I'll get into. But when you come back, part of the challenge is war is a very addictive experience. The, it, in many ways, it meets a lot of the fundamental human needs. There's great connection, the brotherhood, the camaraderie you have. Whether or not you believe in the politics of the war and, you know, we shouldn't have gone and all that stuff. But on the ground, we were doing something meaningful. We were trying to help the people. So there's purpose to your life there's kind of this adrenaline high you get from the nature of these experiences, you know? So it, in, in a way it's very addictive. So when I came back, I was looking for, I, w- I wanted to go back. I was volunteering to go back to Iraq, go back to Afghanistan, every chance I could get. And a big part of me also felt like I hadn't suffered enough because I actually lost a friend in the war. Even before I left, we were like brothers, this friend of mine, him and me. And, um, when I came back, like, I mean, before i had even left, I had lost a very close friend of mine. And uh, we had, we, when we joined the unit, we were like brothers. We did everything together, but, and volunteered to go to Iraq together, every chance we could get. But one summer while I was vacationing, he ended up finding a unit to go with and he didn't come back. So I would always felt guilty that I never went there with him. And it should have been me that died instead of him. Because even when we trained together, like I would beat him by a few points on the rifle range or beat him by a few seconds on a run. So what happened was when he went out there, he got promoted to corporal because he was a good Marine. And as a result, he was in a position that got him killed. So I always felt like I should have gone out there and I should have gotten the promotion. So it should have been me sitting where he was. So when I came back, you know, I felt guilty. I felt guilty that I came back home and so many others hadn't. And um, so it was it was less fulfillment and more guilt, more struggle, more in a way more pain, you know, I mean, yeah, I was happy to come back home, of course, make it, make it out alive. But soon after celebrating the, the, the moment of that, it's in you, then there's a next search, right? And this ties a lot into happiness. Like we can have a win, but at the end of a win, there's another fight to be had. There's always Mm -hmm. another fight to be had. There's always another war to be fought. And I don't just mean an external war. I mean an internal war, right? There's always going to be another fight. There is no finish line. So, But so happiness is not a destination. And I kind of learned that the hard way.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And that's, uh, I think that's got to be one of the biggest misconceptions out there. When when it comes to happiness is that it is a destination, you know, it's sort of the way Hollywood portrays it. Uh, It's it's the way that people come to think about happiness, as opposed to just sort of a temporary state. So at, at what point were you, you know, beginning to sort of, look into the deeper foundations of happiness and uh, you know, try and figure out how to make that a more consistent state rather than, you know, peaks and destinations.
1: Yeah. You know, that's like, like you said that we we live in a world that cultivates happiness as this end result because we're constantly feeding, right? Like, I mean, you look online, here's the quickest, easiest path to make money, or here's how you can get, get six pack abs by walking 14 minutes a day or any result we want. There's people feeding the easiest, fastest, quickest method to get there because we've created the paradigm that it's about getting there but it's not about getting there. It's about the person we become on the journey and the person we become on the journey, that evolution happens through stress. It happens through suffering. It happens through fear. Strength cannot happen without struggle and courage cannot be exercised without fear. So we need to go into those darker spaces, those intense spaces in order to evolve. And it doesn't mean the entire journey is miserable. Of course you balance the the struggle with recovery, right? Like just like working out. I mean, when you stress your muscles, you need to take recovery in order for them to grow. And it's the same thing with the mind and the spirit. So part of the paradigm is how we approach happiness is, is highly flawed because no matter what destination you get to, let's say you want to make a million dollars, whatever, just the destination or get this car, you're going to get there and you're going to realize there's new problems. So I always like to say that progress is not the elimination of problems. Progress is the creation of new problems. So there will always be new problems. And we see this all the time, right? People who seemingly have everything are still suffering tremendously. Uh, people in like celebrities, for example, who seemingly have, have it all. But they're all suffering because the finish line is, there is no finish line. Death is the ultimate finish line. So the key is celebrating the process, celebrating the journey. The, the fact and recognizing and embracing that the journey is the destination. The fundamental problem when we approach anything, like the other day I was chatting with somebody and they asked me, you know, they gave me a specific scenario and said, how would you help this person in this scenario? I said, my answer was, regardless of the scenario you give me, the fundamental problem is most people are going to look for the easiest way out of that scenario. And I get it. It's natural because if I'm in pain, obviously the quickest thing I want to do is get out of pain, right? That's very natural, but that is the fundamental problem. We're looking for the easiest, quickest, fastest way out of the problem. When the reality is no matter which path we pursue, there will always be a struggle. So I always like to say the question to ask is not which passion do I want to follow, but which struggle am I willing to endure? So when you get clear, which struggle am I willing to endure? Every crossroad in life, start a business, get a job, be in this relationship, don't. You know, any crossroad is going to have struggle. The question you got to ask yourself is, which struggle am I willing to endure? And then pursue it. And, like, and then ultimately, at the core, of it, when you pursue it, is developing a positive relationship to the experience of struggle. Like that's the most important skill to master, whether it shows up as fear, stress, anxiety, guilt, sadness, the challenging emotions. And I say challenging, not negative. They're framed as negative, but the reality is there are no bad or good emotions. There's only emotions and we can do anything we want with them. So when we develop a positive relationship, the experience of challenging emotions and struggle, we can use them as an access point to bliss. I, I love that mentality. I think it's, it's far more effective to
0: take that approach uh, than to, to try to seek out little islands of happiness here and there. You're much. I, I think you're spot on there. Um, and if you look at top performers all over
1: the world, they tend to share that mentality. Absolutely. Absolutely. Cause there's, there's going to be struggle whether we like it or not, whether we're seeking it or not. So I always like to say, like, you're going to be punched in the face anyway. Uh, life's going to do that to you. So if you don't seek out a worthy struggle, struggle will find you anyway. So I believe the key is finding your worthy struggle, pursuing your meaning, your path, your purpose. And I call it your worthy struggle because it will be hard. And then that, on that journey of the highs and the lows, you will find happiness. And happiness is also, one thing about happiness, happiness is not the elimination of sadness. Happiness is the ability to find the gift in sadness because you will still experience lows. That's the nature of the beast. That's the nature of life. And you wouldn't want other, any other way. If you didn't experience lows, you couldn't experience highs. And nobody wants to live where their whole life is just numb and static, right? That's not, there's nothing exciting about that. So the lows are a, a natural part of the journey and finding the gift in them is what it's all about.
0: So, so back to your story, because uh, I'm compelled to learn sort of where the shift was for you uh, with between, you know, your, your super low feelings coming back from deployment. At what point were you able to adopt this more stoic mentality? What, What was the sort of breaking point for you to embrace the struggle?
1: The, 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 tipping point or the start of the climb out of my abyss, if you want to call it that was when I was in this moment. I mean, I, I had gotten to a point in my life that I used to drink like a full bottle of vodka a day. And then you go through these horrific withdrawal symptoms that are absolutely brutal. But one day I went one, one morning I woke up and I, I had, I just thought this pattern of drinking and sobering up would never change. So I was about to walk over to the kitchen, pick up a knife and slit my wrists. And that moment was, it shocked me that that even entered my mind. So that was, I mean, I didn't, it's not like that was an aha that magically changed my life instantly, but that was the trigger that started the climb out. So that's when I started saying, okay, something different needs to clear, like clearly something's not working, you know, I need to do, start doing something differently. So I started researching books, like reading books, taking personal development work, delving into it myself to understand the true nature of this struggle, the nature of the brain, the nature of the mind. And that's when I learned a lot of flaws in how we approach it. Like general personal development I came to learn is very flawed. And uh, and I had to kind of figure it out myself, which uh, piecing together a lot of different pieces that led me to this ethos and this concept of fear which is ultimately now my book, my brand and everything I do. And that's what that's what it's all about, like this idea of fear right, like fear and Nirvana, two seemingly contradictory ideas that I have come to learn are very complementary, and fear struggle is an access point to bliss and enlightenment. We need it to ultimately attain bliss and enlightenment and not demonize it. So finding that positive relationship. And that's what led me to is It's just, yeah, again, my own healing work and then taking action and navigating that with some awareness and reflection and realizing what's not working, what is and piecing it together in my own way.
0: So I just want to hone in on that very specific thing you mentioned of, you know, you start, you dove into personal development after that moment of realization, that moment of shock of, of considering like slitting your wrist Mm -hmm. or or Mm -hmm. cutting yourself. Because I think for a lot of people Mm -hmm. that are living a negative lifestyle or, uh, you know, one that they're not satisfied with one that's filled with, you know, depression, anxiety, whatever, they usually know that there's certain habits that they're doing wrong. They, they're probably had similar, you know, experiences of like, how did that Mm -hmm. thought even enter my mind? But to, make the active switch towards changing your behavior towards diving into something like personal development. Was that a very, was that a, cha- a a difficult transition for you Were you sort of, you know, did you already sort of have, uh, you know, some books in mind or things that were sort yeah. of available to you? Uh, what was that very first step into self-development and, and, yeah.
1: you know, uh, great question. So, I mean, I had, I had kind of started delving down this path even before I hit that low because of, you know, because I'd already kind of drug, gotten out of drugs. So when I got out of drugs and joined the Marines, I started to, and you know, the Marines and the outdoor and sort of these quote unquote extreme sports was my avenue. But that inevitably led me to seeking greater mastery within, right? Because that's what it leads you to. So that path slowly had led me to personal development work. So I mean, I remember even in Iraq, I read Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl, you know, one Mm. of the most powerful books of all time. And so I kind of started down that path. But I didn't like, I didn't get as I didn't immerse myself into it into until I got to that low moment. That's when I really had realized that there was some you know, there was like fundamental problems in the, in the neuronal structures of my brain that were affecting my mind and sort of the science of neuroplasticity, the ability to change the brain that I could change my brain and in turn change my experience of life, you know? So delving much deeper into the neuroscience of the brain, tapping that into the, into the spiritual elements as well. And and so looking at psychology, neuroscience, and spirituality in a much deeper way and the spectrum of all three, because I think all three, It's not like science is not the opposite of spirituality. They can coexist, you know? So delving into all three was, uh, in that moment was kind of the fundamental game changer when I really pursued it in a big way.
0: Certainly. I mean, if you learn about neuroplasticity, you start to learn about how the brain changes, it gives you an avenue to pursue. You know, if you don't even know that's possible, then you're going to assume the rut that you're in is just forever.
1: Exactly. Exactly. No, I mean, it's, and it's a great point. It also ties into one of the foundational psychological mindsets, which is the growth mindset. Dr. Carol Dweck is one of the leading researchers in human motivation and peak performance. And she says that, you know, there's sort of the two key mindsets are the growth mindset and the fixed mindset. The fixed mindset, which is so prevalent in our world, is the idea that talent is ingrained, that it cannot be changed. So we hear things like, you know, Tiger Woods was born for golf, or Roger Federer is a quote unquote natural. And the growth mindset on the opposite end of that spectrum is one that says, when we go through struggle, it's an opportunity for growth. It's not a reflection of our self-identity, that anything can be cultivated with effort. Now, this is not to take away from that fact that genetics do exist, but the point is sort of irrelevant. I would rather come from the mindset that I can cultivate anything through effort, whether or not the genetics. Are there. And, and to some degree, I've proved my own genetics wrong. I mean, I, I don't have just this blood disorder. I have flat feet. I have scoliosis. I have this other condition where my body can't absorb nutrients well. And now I'm an ultra runner. You know what I mean? So I'm not ideally biologically suited to be a runner. And this is not to say it in a bragging way. The point is, we can, to a certain degree, rise above our genetic flaws, if you want to call them that, to cultivate things through extreme effort. You know? So growth mindset is the foundational mindset. And that, that's sort of the psychological correlate to the science of neuroplasticity. So, learning about changing my brain was a game changer because it also realized I also realized that we don't control most of what shows up in our brain. So, we attach our self identity to our brain, right? To our emotions. But most of that is not within our control. So, that's the fundamental flaw is like if I had to sort of say what the starting point to my healing was to let go of the self identity that I am this person, like to say that I am depressed or I have depression or I am an alcoholic, as opposed to saying something like, My brain goes to a state of depression from time to time, but I am not my brain and my brain is not me, right? That higher self, that divine self, that conscious self, whatever you want to call it. That self is not the brain patterns that we are not even in control of. That's been shaped by everything the world has thrown our way until this day. So when we can let go of that self-identity to our emotional patterns, to our thoughts and our experiences, we can start building the patterns to rise above them, to transcend them and ultimately create a new self.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I love that as well. It's it's amazing how uh, labels can either work for you or against you. You know, you just described a situation where you sort of defied your biology uh, by, you know, even though you you have certain conditions, just you know, it's like if you have the mindset that that's going to affect your ability to be an athlete, then you won't be an athlete. If you don't believe yeah. that, then you will be. You know, you have the opportunity to still be an athlete. Whereas using a label like i am depressed or i am an alcoholic is bound to backfire on you um just as just as easily it's interesting yeah,
1: yeah. so i choose to not use those labels that are going to hinder me and instead choose the more empowering ones create a new one like fearvana is my label that's my go to word <laughs> to navigate so,
0: struggle where, where did you come up with the word fearvana
1: i uh, cannot take credit for it my uh now X, but my ex-wife was the one who sort of coined it. Uh we were we I had been living this ethos and I, you know, I thought what value can I provide to the world as I was getting this personal development work? And she was the one who coined that word. And when she did, I was like, That is gold. When I bought <laughs> like fifty different Firvana domains and that became the ethos. Yeah.
0: Excellent, excellent. So uh you, you describe it as a combination between fear and nirvana and uh you know, I'm sure that it's, it's contagious. If you can coin the word, you know, if you can get people to talk about that word, how would you like to see the word fearvana used by, you know, by people pursuing a similar path as you?
1: I love it. Uh, I think, you know, so the way I define it sort of, if I had to put a dictionary definition into it would be the bliss that results from engaging our fears to pursue our own worthy struggle. So when we find our own worthy struggle and we commit ourselves entirely to that path with our mind, body, spirit, our soul onto that path, there is tremendous purpose and meaning that gives us the, the power to wake up every morning, right? I mean, to wake up every morning with a smile charged, ready to take on the day. And it doesn't mean there won't be hard times. Of course there will be. But how I would like, and how I've already been blessed to now see the impact from readers, how they're embracing the word is that when they feel the fear in whatever context, they recognize and they acknowledge that this is just a stepping stone to fearvana. Like a really good sort of analogy for it. It's like when I went skydiving, I was terrified before the jump you know, you're super nervous. But as soon as you jump, the fear dis- disappears, because now you're just flying, right? And so that moment, it's through the fear that you experience fear of Anna. the bliss on kind of this, as you as you step into the fear, and you transcend it, and you're in this moment where you are just so immersed in this beautiful struggle, you know, that, that, that you, that, that I call fear So I've, I've seen people use it in the context of like public speaking. They use it, you know, when they're, they're nervous and they'll say, all right, this is just fear you know? And so it, it gives them an avenue to step into their fears and the realization that, that, that is what will lead them to their bliss. Because again, I mean, that's the key again, to happiness and is not, I mean, we cannot grow in sitting in comfort right? Like if we want something we've never had before, want more money, more, more physical growth, whatever a relationship, we have to do something we've never done before. And that means taking risks and with risks means fear. So that's how you become, that's how you achieve growth and ultimately become happier and happier in the journey and the pursuit of whatever the pursuit may be. So fear is kind of the access point. I'm, and I'm, it's cool to see how people are kind of embracing it so far.
0: Yeah, that's great. I mean, the way you've described it, fear is the, it's sort of a bridge from fear to action. Because, you know, I think yeah. if you find you know, use the skydiving example, like if you're standing, you know, you're ready to jump out of the plane, I think fear mostly strikes people in a paralyzing way, uh, or you, you, you're just sitting there, you don't know how you could, you know, move to the next stage there. So if you have a word in mind, something that can create that, uh, that direction to go from fear to action, uh, I think that could be very effective. I think that's a great place uh, bridge there.
1: Thanks, man. Yeah, it's kind of becomes like a little mantra to, ke- to keep to move through. I like that the bridge between fear and action. So hopefully it's uh, making a difference.
0: Absolutely. So what what kind of uh, how would you like to see uh, or, or where do you see this this sort of movement going into, you know, as far as like what what kind of applications would you like, uh, you know, to see your, your messaging take hold? Yeah. in? Where where would you like to see that most effective?
1: Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, because the nature of fear, ultimately, everybody feels it at some point, right? And fear, stress, and anxiety are neurologically very similar. They're almost the same, and we just have sort of a different word for our relationship with that experience. So, everybody in life at some point is going to experience fear, stress, and anxiety. So, the applications are sort of universal, right? Like they can apply in many different contexts. And initially, when I wrote the book, it was sort of targeted. But now, as it's as it's been, the brand's been growing. It's been reaching a lot of people in a wide variety of contexts as they navigate the struggle of life. But what I'm now doing with it, because, you know, as I, as I said earlier, like the, the greatest, the greatest skill to master is a positive relationship to suffering. And on the flip side of that, the greatest problem we have in the world is our negative relationship to suffering. Because if you think about it, like if I, I mean, what, what are we ultimately seeking? Why, why, why do we do anything? We do it to be happier, fulfilled, inner peace, whichever word you want to classify of why we do anything right in, in life. And if we are able to suffer well—that's one of my key mantras—to suffer well, we smile in the face of the struggle. We can inevitably live a happier life because it doesn't matter whether life hits us in the face or whether we're seeking a meaningful challenge. We'll be able to enjoy the struggle itself, right? So, at the core of it, developing a positive relationship to suffering is the most important skill to master. And the problem is, collectively as human beings, we're trying to go further, we're trying to go faster, we're trying to make our lives easier, we're trying to live longer. But are we actually making our lives? better and we're not <laughs> collectively if you just look at the numbers by any measure of success you know obesity mental health our lives are only getting worse so sorry that's my context of why i want to do what i'm doing now with fear is to help all people develop this positive relationship and creating a series of products and services to build a movement around this concept because i believe it's the most important skill to it's the most important thing to help our human family enjoy the journey of life more. So what I'm, as, I'm, as I'm now building it out, what I'm creating is like a Firvana Academy, Firvana Fitness, Firvana Festivals, Firvana Retreats. I have my own nonprofit called the Firvana Foundation. So like, I mean, the, the idea is kind of what Richard Branson built with the Virgin Empire. I want to build with Firvana, but unlike Virgin, I'm not getting into mobile or airline or space travel. It's more that staying in the space of well being, enhancing our collective experience of life and creating products and services in multiple verticals to do that. That's the vision as I now, the book was the foundation and now stepping into the next phase because I was really blessed. The book did pretty well. Uh, I mean, it's continuing to do really well. And, you know, the Dalai Lama wrote the forward for my book. So it's gotten, uh, which I was really an honor, really blessed for that to happen, as you might imagine. Yeah. And that's, that's really set a solid foundation for which uh, I can now build off of to help people navigate struggle.
0: So I, I have to ask about the Dalai Lama, uh, you know, sort of exchange there. How how does one even get their book in the hands of the Dalai Lama?
1: Yeah, it was a pure cold pitch, you know, pure cold pitch. Uh, I get that a lot, as you might imagine. How did you make that happen? <laughs> I mean, I was an unknown, like no media exposure, no like no, I wasn't well known. You know, I wasn't didn't have a massive platform. Um, and so, so the, what happened was just first was you know actually so like it can bring it back actually. So when I first wrote Fearvana, I remember having this you know it's a very spiritual concept. I thought who's the sort of spiritual leader in the world, the Dalai Lama, it'd be really cool to get him to endorse the book. But immediately I sort of sidelined that thought and I was like, eh, who am I? You know, that that like I could never make it happen, no way. And then later on, as I was pursuing it, I started to get some pretty noteworthy endorsements. Like I was blessed, Seth Godin, who I really admire, endorsed my book as well. I started to get some confidence. And the key lesson here that I want to share is that confidence is not the fuel, confidence is the result. So I started to get confidence after taking action and getting some endorsements. And that led me to say, you know what? Why can't I get an endorsement from the Dalai Lama? Like, why not? I believe in this work. And so I reached out. Um, I reached out on his website. They got me nowhere. So I did like hours and hours of research. I found a name and an email address from someone in, in His Holiness's office, a monk there. I shot a personal video for him sharing what I've been through, what I want to do with Firavana, what the mission is. All the profits from the book are going to noteworthy causes we support as well. So I shared all of this, and this monk connected me like three other monks, finally found the right monk, and then built a relationship with him over five months. And you know, another key lesson I want to share in that that whole time, that five months, when I wasn't hearing back, I would think, oh, they hate me. They hate my book. You know, why aren't they responding to me? There's no way it's going to happen. But I would follow up anyway. So it's okay to go through these moments of the self-doubt, the struggle, the who am I stuff, the I'm not worthy. All that stuff shows up. But you don't have to let that define your action. So I would follow up anyway. And after five months, I was really honored that this uh, monk said, you know, considering everything you've been through and your genuine desire to serve, I'll press your case. And then I got uh, – I, I was only asked for like a one-line endorsement, but I was really honored that His Holiness wrote the forward for the book, which was really cool. Well, wow, I mean, that's a lesson in sales above, above <laughs> everything.
0: You know, I, I, uh, you know, run a sales organization myself in the solar space yeah. out here in California. And, uh, you know, if there's one lesson to take away from that is that you can never do enough follow-up and that even a, a long shot pitch is worth, uh, is worth pitching and worth following up with. I love that. Absolutely. It's amazing.
1: I mean, as you can imagine, that was a game changer for an unknown author to get an endorsement like that. I mean, it changed everything for the marketing of the book. So it's absolutely worth the effort and the fear and the stress and the self-doubt. <laughs> yeah,
0: it's commitment to to the value of your product too. I, I truly appreciate that. That's awesome. Yeah, um, and yeah, and then also getting, you know, getting those, other endorsements along the way for people like Seth Godin is also impressive. Was that a similar strategy of just follow up? You know, market, send it out to them, follow up, and and hope. Yeah, to get you a know,
1: good i Yeah. I mean, I wanted to reach out to people who had genuinely, uh, had impacted my life. So not just getting names for the sake of names. And now of course these were noteworthy names. So they add social proof to your product. There's no doubt about that, but these were people who had genuinely touched my life. So some cases it was a quote unquote warmer pitch. If you want to call it that in the sense like Jack Canfield, I had done a lot of his seminars and stuff and we had really connected in his seminars. So, i kind of knew he would, you know, he would, uh, and that was amazing. Jackson, amazing human being, but like Seth Godin was connecting via email, shooting a video again, reaching out, following up and same thing with many other people. I got like, I was blessed with endorsements from Keith Ferrazi uh, Marcy Shimoff, Marshall Goldsmith. A lot of them were just cold pitches, you know, uh, just sharing my story. Dean Carnassus was one of the most famous ultra runners in the world. Amazing human being, uh, again, all people who had really impacted my life and just tremendous people. So, uh, reaching out. And uh, I mean, I got some no's along the way as you do, of course, but the amount of people who said yes was, was very, just an honor, very humbling. And of course, it's just a game changer for the marketing of a book for, for again, an unknown author that that is now continues to this day being like, people are like, huh, that's some pretty impressive endorsements. So, you know, it makes a big difference in terms of marketing a book, especially if you're yeah just starting off.
0: Well, I, I think there's a lot of lessons in there, especially about commitment to your your content, commitment to the value that you're going to bring, and also to just following up and staying true to that is more important than your previous yeah. reputation.
1: That's pretty cool. Exactly. Yeah. Believing in your message, believing in the value of your work and, and having that, that commitment uh, keep you moving forward. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. So so what's, what's next? What, what, what do you find yourself doing uh, most of the time right now?
1: Right now, you know, I, in terms of my business, I have digital information products that I sell online. It's sort of in the more traditional online marketing space, but where I'm going now is sort of venturing more into the tech startup world, which is a brand new world that absolutely terrifies me. I have zero clue how to, you know, build, build what I want to build, scale the empire that I want to scale into. Uh, But getting into next, as we move into 2020, getting into uh, the Fearvana Academy, building out this platform, and um, and I'm blessed with a lot of great mentors who have, who have much more uh, much more skills and knowledge and wisdom than I do in all these areas. So they're kind of helping me into getting into how to build what I want to build and how to scale it to the level that I want to scale it. Because I envision this being sort of a global empire. And I, I, I know it will happen. The, 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 the only thing that I don't know is how much struggle I'll have to endure to get there. But how much ever struggle I will have to endure, I'll endure it. Because I think the mission is worth it. The, I mean, the amount of messages i get from readers of how much it's like it's fundamentally altered their perception because again the world views struggle in such a demon like it demonizes fear it says we shouldn't be fearless i mean we should be fearless don't be scared we say stress is bad we say anxiety is bad so when people for the first time ever are hearing that these are not bad and it's okay to feel those feelings it that itself it creates some mindset shifts that have been really cool to witness, whether it's speaking or read from messages from readers. And so uh, I believe in it. And, uh, you know, I go through my moments of lows still I go through many moments where it's overwhelming, it's stressful, because beyond an addition of this, I also train very hard for I'm an ultra runner, I do pretty intense expeditions, like next year, I'm planning to ski across the Patagonian ice cap, eventually go to the North Pole, climbing mountains in Himalaya. So intense expeditions that uh, require me to train pretty intensely. So navigating both these in and of itself, each one of these could be a full-time venture. So doing both is challenging to say the least, but, uh, I'm enjoying the ride through the highs and the lows.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, clear, clearly you're, uh, you know, the mindset that, that you share in fearvana is something that you've adopted yourself. If you know, at the same time, uh, you know, you, you've clearly developed a long-term relationship with struggle. Um, you know, being able to dive into such a diverse set of industries between, uh, you know, ultra marathon running and, and, you know, startup tech, like forget about it. You got to really be in for it uh, (laughs) to to succeed in those areas.
1: Yeah. And the key Uh, thing is also learning from people who've done it, finding mentors and learning from people who've, who've, uh, uh, who are more advanced. I partner, I mean, the key to me doing this is partnering with people who are way smarter than me. So I can keep doing dumb things like, running 80 miles around a 0.2 mile loop for 20 hours or, you know, stuff like that. But just having mentors and having guides along the journey is fundamental. It's a game changer.
0: Do you have any, uh, anything to share? I mean, it seems like you've, you've had a, you know, you're doing well at, at meeting these people who are, who are, you know, farther along the journey than you are right now, which I, I can attest to is, is very important for, you know, mm-hmm. any sort of growth is just surround yourself with people that are also, that are either in the process or who have done it uh, successfully. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Do you have any tips or, or advice or, or things that you've learned along the way when it comes to meeting those mentors or, you know, finding people that can you know, help guide you?
1: Yeah. Uh, I mean, one part is being willing to invest in their programs and their trainings, because that will put you in front of them. And then if you build a good relationship, they will guide you. That's how I currently have a mentor. He's built hundred million dollar companies in Silicon Valley. Uh, like with him, what happened was he actually read Firvana and then invited me to come speak at one of his events and I spoke at his event, and we became really close he 's a good friend of mine now, but he 's also mentoring me. So I guess part of it is you know putting good products out there being like here's I think the core of it too is be so good they can 't ignore you. Steve Martin said that it's like so pursue mastery at your highest level at your craft then people will want to work with you. People want to support you. I have not done another mentor that I actually invested a large amount of money to go to one of his programs, but I'm learning so much from him. And now he's mentoring me. And I think, and I see this with a few people sometimes is they're not willing to invest and then they wonder why they don't get it. So you have to give yourself the opportunity to give yourself the opportunity. And what I mean by that is put yourself in scenarios where you can be around people who are more advanced than you. And if you don't have, let's say you're in a bad position, you don't have the money to invest reach out to some people like people are more helpful than you're than you can imagine a lot of people like when I share the Dalai Lama story a lot of people are like huh I never even thought to ask the Dalai Lama you know so be willing to make the ask reach out sometimes they might send you a piece of advice and what they if like they'll often they'll respond they'll send you hey do this or here's a piece of advice then do it take action on it get and then respond to them saying hey I did what you suggested thank you so much I appreciate it what's next you know like take ask for advice, take action on it, show them that you're going to be someone who pursues your craft at the highest level, willing to pursue mastery, willing to be great. But that's, again, that's hard, right? So you have to be willing to do that. And, um, and then people, then they're more likely to want to work with you. That's why I'm blessed with great mentors is because, so like to summarize that is partly again, having a noteworthy product being so good, they can't ignore you having a vision that people want to come on board for. Like I have partners in gamification and artificial intelligence and behavior design. They all want to be a part of it because they believe in the higher vision behind what I'm doing for Urbana. You know, so having that, that clear vision that transcends you, that's about something greater than you being willing to invest. This is a big thing people do not. I see people not only do some people will come out to me and ask for help. And while well, I share something with them and I know they have the money to, they don't want to put it. And it's like, you're missing out on an opportunity, you know? And I'm not saying this about me. I, like I've invested count, Like I can't even tell you how much money to be around people like Jack Canfield to be around some of my mentors that now work with me. So invest the money, invest the time, invest the energy, do the work, do the work. People will want to be around you.
0: Yeah. It's going to be a two way street but it sounds like, you know, you can never just expect someone to help you along the way. You have to be invested in them as much as, uh, you know, it, it probably, you know, two, three, 10 folds. You got to be invested in them uh, before they Absolutely. get invested in you.
1: Yeah. And then give back, you know, as you grow too, is mentor others. Like I mentor others now, you know, uh, I have men- mentors and I mentor others because, uh, I think it's about that, that cycle. And it's not like I'm mentoring them because people mentored me. But if, if you do it, I just think that, that matters. And it shows that you're willing to also share your wisdom with others who are further behind you on your journey. There's always going to be someone further ahead and someone further behind. So I like to say, surround yourself with people who are kind of on like, it's kind of like the 33%, you know, 33% spend time with people who are more advanced, 33% people who are on, on the same path as you are on the same level in whatever craft you want to pursue. And then 33% support others who are behind you. And I think that's a good rule to follow.
0: Yeah, that's great. I love that one. Um, I'm curious with your, uh, you know, what what your plans are with ultra marathon running and some of these large feats of strength. I mean, those, uh, are like, you know, signing yourself up for a certain dose of suffering. Uh, where where do you see that, that avenue, you know, like sort of going to, you know, do you have some large, super large goals to hit there or are you taking it like one, you know, massive adventure at a time?
1: It's kind of one uh, adventure at a time because I mean, the, 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 Array of adventures that are there that are in existence to pursue is limitless. One lifetime is not enough to engage all of the things I'd want to do. Right. But, uh, so right now it's just kind of taking it one step at a time, one adventure at a time. I have a sense of a few things I want to do. Like I want to go, I mean, from mountaineering to polar exploration to ultra runs to scuba diving. Like I want to scuba dive in the Galapagos. I want to climb an 8,000 meter peak in the Himalayas. I want to ski across, ski, ski to the North pole, you know? So, Right now I just kind of take it one step at a time until the next one comes because partly it's that like channeling and focusing consciousness. I do more in terms of like my business. So I have two expeditions already lined up for next year. And other than that, I'm not thinking that much further ahead. I have a sense of where I want to go. Like I have a one big expedition potentially in the three to five year range. But everything that I'm doing is preparing me for the next one. Everything is also—it's in its in its own right, it's awesome, but it's also training, right? So whether I climb mountains or ski across ice caps, I'm still physically improving my well-being, right? So in some senses, the skills also transfer, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's—it it's, sounds like you're allowing the suffering to compound uh, you know, and, and utilize the suffering for one event to the, to use it for the next. That's fantastic. Exactly.
1: Exactly. So, I mean, I run consistently and you keep, keep learning from each, uh, each struggle in pursuit of the next one.
0: Awesome. I love it. So where should, uh, where, where can we direct the listeners' attention to? Where should they find you online? Which, uh, you know, how can they support you?
1: So uh, the book is available on Amazon, in Kindle, Audible, paperback, and all the profits, as I mentioned, go to many worthy causes we support, like uh, former child soldiers in West Africa to victims of sex trafficking in India. So I'm really humbled to be part of those organizations and support them. And then you can find me and my work more on fearvana.com. That's F-E-A-R-V-A-N-A.
0: And I imagine the book is available everywhere books are sold?
1: Yeah. I mean, uh, mostly it's on Amazon. I, I don't even know which bookstores it's in these days. Publisher mostly takes care of all of that. So, but, uh, but generally I direct people to, 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 Amazon, uh, to purchase it. Cause I know a lot of people like Audible and Kindle these days in addition to the paperback. So yeah, but it's available out there and who knows
0: where else. <laughs> Absolutely. Do you, do you have any other books planned on the horizon?
1: Uh, eventually I do like write, writing my book was one of the hardest things I've done. It was a brutal process. So not right now, but I do have a couple of books. Actually, I have two more in the, in, in mind. One, eventually I'm actually going to go write completely in the darkness. So one of the things I did not share one of my other adventures that I did, if you want to call it that was spending seven days in a dark room in pitch darkness, isolation and silence. And so, uh, one of the, my, my next, I was journaling while I was in there and the stuff that came through was very profound so in the next three to five years, my plan is to go spend like a month in the darkness and write a book while I'm in there. A month in the darkness. takes I'm
0: curious just how that uh, logistically works when it comes to like, um, you know, food, water, you yeah. know, basic so they, they have these places
1: called uh, uh, darkness retreats where they they've organized rooms because you have to create like, pitch darkness cannot see your hand in front of you. So there's no ambient light, which is hard to do in a, in your normal house setting. Uh, so I went there, spent seven days over there. And what they do is like for food, for example, I chose to do smoothies. You could do water fast smoothies or food. I chose smoothies, but three times a day, they'll bring a smoothie and they'll sort of ring a little bell and they'll put it in the hallway outside, but the hallway is pitch dark as well. And then after they sort of leave the hallway, you come out, grab my smoothie, drink it and put it back. But you're basically in an isolated room and the only time you open the door is to grab your smoothie and you're otherwise you're sitting in an isolated room for seven days
0: in darkness. I mean, are you just completely hallucinating by the end of it? I feel like my mind would start to populate the darkness with all you, sorts of imagery. You, and do, you,
1: you <laughs> do go through some very trippy experiences. Like uh, they say that when your brain's in darkness, when you're in darkness for that extended periods of time, your brain starts to naturally release DMT which is one of the primary ingredients in ayahuasca. So, uh, I mean, I had hallucinogenic trips like you would not believe. I mean, I would see lights, like for the first two days, it was purple lights that were moving around like a lava lamp. And then for whatever reason that I cannot explain, the purple disappeared. And then they became red and green lights, red mostly, but some green. And, uh, but one particular day, like day five, I remember, it was, I had this experience where I, I saw a blindingly bright white light, like, like it felt blinding. I felt like I needed an eye mask and I was literally touching my eyelids to see are my eyes open or are my eyes closed, like trying to cover them. You know, it was completely surreal. It's a very profound experience. Wow. Yeah. It,
0: is the room just completely padded or something? Is it, is it in a way that you cannot it, So yourself? it's
1: like a tiny little room. You gotta, yeah. And I mean, you know, I mean, you, there's, there's wall. wall I and mean, you could hurt yourself, but you're, you're <laughs> you've seen it before you, the lights go off. So you have a sense and then you kind of feel your way around, but it's a tiny little room, you know, a bed, couch, table, and a bathroom. And that's about it. And you're just, uh, I mean, there's nothing to do obviously. So (laughs) you just, one of the reasons why it shows darkness over like, have you heard of the silent retreats? You know, the Vipassana. Yes, I've heard of those. Yeah. Those are much more common and much more popular. I, that's what I was going to do. Uh, but I didn't know darkness retreats existed, but in my stumbling around, I researched, I found this. And to me, the appeal in that was, when you shut off your visual sense, you're cutting the one of the primary ways through which we, with, through which we engage the world. So there's nothing external for your mind and your consciousness to attach to. As a result, you're forced to go within. And that's a scary but beautiful journey.
0: Yeah, that's uh that is super interesting. I think that's one of the things that you know you have to have real commitment to the struggle to, to dive into. Without a
1: doubt. It's a uh, different a kind of, of struggle.
0: Yeah, a different <laughs> kind of fear too. I think a lot of people are are, You know, their fear, you know, really starts to go off when it comes to just being in a dark room alone with nothing but your thoughts.
1: Absolutely. Stillness is a terrifying thing that many of us aren't willing to confront. And I was too. I was terrified of stillness. That's why I chose to go pursue it. So what was your thoughts entering into the
0: the retreat? You're just like, here we go. Or, you know, do you have any sort of...
1: (laughs) Kind of, yeah, I mean, like you know, I mean, I knew I was knew what I was getting into, a little nervous, obviously, and uh, and just you know that yeah that that this is it, I mean, I knew I wouldn't quit, you know, I mean, you have an out obviously they're not you're not like in a you're not trapped in there, but <laughs> but I had moments where I'm just sitting there, i 'm like, Shit, I have a long time left in the dark, but yeah. you know, so you go through those moments, but you also go through very um profound meditations where you're sitting there, you're able to silence you, can, you I developed a great mastery over my thoughts that needs to be trained it's not like it suddenly becomes consistent when you leave the darkness but mastery of my ability to silence my mind the stuff that was coming through in my journaling which is what inspired me to eventually to to make to decide that eventually i'm just going to go into the dark and write my book because with like you know in the darkness i feel like the stuff was coming through you know, not to get too woo-woo about it, but like my book, I can say like I wrote this book, right? Like Firvana. But this stuff was like stuff that I read. Like I was reading it after the darkness, and I was tearing up reading at the profundity of what I wrote. And again, it's not an egotistical way. It was like literally, I felt like stuff was coming through. You know, and so that that's what inspired me to uh, want to go write a full book in the dark and see what see what shows up. But like, I mean, I got a lot in the darkness, but by far the most profound experience was coming back into the light for the first time after seven days. Like that was incredibly powerful. Like what
0: emotions existed
1: when you experienced light again? Awesome question. Um, you know, I mean, I remember just tearing up in awe at the, um, looking at the world with those eyes, you see the world differently. And that was one of my key thoughts was I wish I could, Look at the world every day through these eyes because the world looks fundamentally different, you know, and that leads me to my second thought, which was this deep sense of like gratitude for every bit of pain and suffering I'd ever experienced. Because in that moment, I I experienced it viscerally in a knowing way that you cannot experience the light in that way. You cannot see the light that way unless you've been in the dark. And you know you can rationally get it, but when you feel it, when you know it, when you experience it so viscerally and so powerfully, it's—I mean—I don't even know what word I could use to describe the ex- emotion except like just absolutely awe-inspiring. I mean, it, like I was literally tearing up at how profound uh, and, and jarring, but in a most beautiful and humbling way to have seen the light in that in that way. I mean, I would definitely do it again, and I would highly recommend it to almost anyone on a spiritual path because, uh, it's, I mean, it's not easy of course, but it's profound. And you will find a uh, Yeah.
0: That's very interesting. I mean, I'm sure you've heard of like isolation tanks and things like that, which, you know, you, you basically subject yourself to, you know, no sensory information because even the light around us allowing us to see is in a way sort of like noise for your brain because it's more to interpret and take in. So when you turn down the volume on all that noise, uh, for your senses, then things can really amp up. And it's interesting what you said about, uh, you know, writing your book in a condition where the thoughts are flowing through you like that. Uh, because oddly enough, one of my, my recent guests on the podcast here is um, Paul Selig. Uh, he is, he, he talked about channeling and something that, you know, again, you know, I try not to get too woo woo either and try to, to, you know, maintain a skeptical mind, but I think there's certainly something to, uh, you know, turning down the volume and, and people who might have the ability to do that with their mind, turn down the volume and to sort of tap into the, the whatever it is, whether it's internal, yeah. or external, those, yeah. you know, that source of ideas and thoughts and uh, inspiration. So I'd be very curious about two things. One is how your book comes out after a month in the darkness, if it's pure gold, it could be just like word of God by that point. (laughs) uh, (laughs) And also if the experience of coming uh, into light uh, after 30 days is similar or exponentially greater than after one week. Very curious.
1: Right. Yeah, no, I'd be curious. I mean, I'm, it's not something I'm on the cards for right now because obviously you're basically taking away yourself from life for work, everything for that long, yes. long period of time, even 10 days was a good chunk. But, uh, so I'm going to wait till I've established a good chunk of the fear of Honor Empire to the point that it's sort of, uh, being able to be a little bit self-sustaining and it doesn't require me. And then I can eventually, and also at that point I built up enough of a, a brand and a, and, and a name that people want to read your journey, you know? Uh, sure. uh so, but it would be, I mean, it, even the idea if it is pondering, it is fairly daunting. <laughs>
0: Absolutely. Yeah. That's interesting. And Last question about that is, uh, where, where did you, where, where does one find a darkness retreat? Was there one that you'd the recommend? The place I
1: went to, uh, was in Germany, highly recommended, amazing people and they run a very, very smooth operation. Uh, and the website is darknessretreat.net. Easy enough. Uh, awesome. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, but very, uh, and yeah, they're amazing people. So highly recommend that experience. Well, uh,
0: that's all great stuff. This has been a fascinating conversation. Uh, before we wrap up, is there anything that you would like to leave with the audience? Any last, you know, pieces of information, words of advice, asks, or requests, anything like that?
1: Uh, just fundamentally, I yeah, if there's Like, again, topic to reiterate, the point is to practice and train and pursue the art and science of suffering. Well, like mastering the experience of suffering. Well, use that as a mantra. I do too. I actually have a little wristband that says suffer well. So when I'm in the pain, I just say, embrace it, suffer well, you know, so use that mantra. It'll help guide you through pain and uh, ultimately um, find meaning, not just in the pain, but on the other and get to where, get to the rewards on the other side of it as well.
0: I love that. Well, Akshay, I'm, I'm uh, honored to have you on the show here. This has been an enlightening conversation and I you, am brother. truly, absolutely. And I'm truly looking forward to seeing, uh, you know, what, what you produce in the future here, because, Clearly, you know, you you live the uh, you know, you are walking the walk and you're talking the talk, you know, it's it's a good thing to see. It's a beautiful thing for authors, especially in the self-help space, to to really, you know, deliver on that. And I'm sure everyone will be able to benefit from reading your book, Firavana. Uh and so, you know, good luck out there. I'm excited to see what happens.
1: Thank you so much, you so much man. Appreciate it.
0: Absolutely. Thank you.